Uh, if you're new, um, this is a handout-driven course tonight, and so you'll need one or you won't know what's going on. Uh, there's some gentlemen that have one. If you need one, just raise your hand. And if you knew there's a pen, there should be a pen anyway somewhere in the seat back to write with. These, of course, will be obsolete in just a couple of days, so maybe when you leave, take as many as you want. Um, they're great little invites to the Harvest Festival and the Friend Day, which is this coming weekend, which we'll pray for at the end of our time together. All right, I think we're about ready to begin. Thanks, Ed, for your help with that. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Holy Father, we uh, thank you tonight for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We're so thankful and grateful that uh, you meet us wherever we are, whatever our need, that you care because you told us to cast every care upon you knowing that you care for us. So we ask in this hour together as we think through the importance of your word and applying it richly into our hearts and lives that you would help us further to understand it, that you would equip us in a way that we could help others. You've told us to teach the whole counsel of scripture as believers. We know we do that in different capacities, but in some sense, we know you want to use us all. So we pray that because of our time here in your word, we'll be better equipped to do that. I need your help, and I thank you in advance for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I need a pen uh, to get all my, uh, thank you, brother, to get all my typos out. Uh, this thing is still hot off the press. Thank you, Peter. All right. So if you're new tonight, we are in a series on uh, the Christian in the Bible. This is part of our basic discipleship course and you're getting a portion of the handout this evening. It's 49 pages long, and after tonight, all 49 pages will be up there online. This is what we cover in the discovery class. These are really the nuts and bolts of the Christian life. These are the things that you want to help your children, your grandchildren, those whom God privileges you to disciple to understand. Uh, we began this section, uh, section seven, by looking at the power of the Word of God. We saw God's word in respect to being justified, that no one is saved apart from it. We saw God's word in respect to being sanctified. Uh, God uses his word to grow us. Then we looked at the priority of the Christian should place uh, in studying the word of God, that we are to be diligent. It's a decision we make that while we are all beloved of God, we're not all approved of God. Uh, study and show yourself approved of God as a workman that God can use. Uh, we saw that the Christian must minister God's word from a spirit-filled heart. And so we recapped, as we do almost in every section of the discovery class, some of the prior truths, and we saw that there are four principal commands in the New Testament that summarize our responsibility, our relationship to the spirit. We're not to grieve him, so we're to have no unconfessed sin. We're not to quench him. We're to be available for anything God asks us to do in Scripture. We're to walk by him as a man needs air to sustain himself. So we depend upon the spirit moment by moment. And then we're to sow to the spirit. And so the Christian must sow to the spirit by meditating on scripture. And last time we largely concluded by looking at the parallel between uh, being filled with the spirit and being filled with God's word. That brings us to where we are tonight, the product of the word of God in the Christian life. Um, after the Holy Spirit enters our lives through his second birth, as we meditate on scripture, of which he is the author and teacher, he is able to rebuild our thoughts and emotions, giving us increased power over sin and wisdom to live life. So as we think of the product of God's word, first, the Bible can renew your mind and change your life. Satan's called the God of this world, and that's in quotations, of course, because God is sovereign. Satan, who runs the worldly world, uh, wants to shape our thinking so as to shape our behavior that our lives might be fall in conformity to his plan. That's his goal. However he can do it, on whatever level he can do it, whether someone is sold out to him or whether someone is in the kingdom of God and he tries to deceive you. Uh, we read here in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your offenses or trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the rest. 
So Satan here, dubbed the prince of the power of the air, he is the spirit that is working. It's the Greek word energo. We get our word energy from it. He's energizing the sons of disobedience. So the way he often works is he just needs some key people who will yield to his plan that will help shape the world system, the value systems, the philosophies, and he sells them to the masses at large. For this reason, it is essential for us to obey the command in Galatians not to sow to the flesh, but to sow to the spirit. And we spent a good deal of time on that. Only as your mind is renewed through the counsel of Scripture will more and more areas of your life conform to the Spirit's plan. So it's not accidental. It's um, through a series of choices that we make every day, really, in one respect, every hour. And so the Apostle Paul reminds us, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I like actually the Phillips paraphrase translation. It was one of the first major paraphrases that came out in London, and I think it was 1951. And he rendered it, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. And so we spoke of this metamorpho, this transformation, this metamorphosis that only happens through changed thinking. And so negatively, you're commanded, do not be conformed, while positively, you are commanded to be transformed by the renewing of your mind in order to prove the will God has for your life. Remember, we're talking about how the Bible can renew your mind and change your life. The word prove is the Greek word that was used to refer to metals that have been tested and proved to be without impurity. Dakimazo, when you heated up a metal and it showed whether or not it was the real stuff, there should have been just a little bit of dross on the top, if any, if it had already been refined. Uh, when you put the alpha prefix on words in Greek, much like in English, there's millennialists, we believe in a thousand year reign, and there's amillennialists, they say there is no reign of the Messiah. Adakimazo is a word that's used in uh, Romans 1, where he said he gave them over to a depraved mind. In other words, their minds were tested and found wanting. And so they received, by their choices, an upside-down mind, a depraved mind, a reprobate mind, depending on your translation. So the metal under close scrutiny did not lack internal fortitude or integrity, and so it was ex it was as approved after testing. So that, that's what God wants to do with our minds. He wants to bring them through the fiery furnace, so to speak, of Scripture and get rid of the dross, and it's a process. In the same way, one outcome of a renewed mind is that we are able to prove or to determine in the laboratory of life, because that's really what the word prove means. It means to experience. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, David, when he was handed Saul's armor to fight Goliath, he says, I haven't proved this. I haven't tested it. I hadn't experienced this armor, so I don't want it. So that's the thought. Um, to prove or to determine in the laboratory of life that God's will is known to us in our experience to be good and acceptable and perfect. As we've seen already in this whole section, from 1 Peter 2.2, 2, James 1.21, you know, remember 1 Peter 1, 2, 1 and 2, where he talks about putting away certain negative things, and James does the same thing, Psalm 1, Romans 2. The conclusion through our experience is that God's will is perfect, is not automatically realized if we're harboring unconfessed and unrepented sin. So if there is um, dirt in our life, we can read the Bible, but we're ignoring the commands that are to precede our study of Scripture. Get rid of this, malice, slander, guile. Put away all wickedness and all filthiness. And then you have the positive command that follows. And so that pattern is found all the way through Scripture. And so we won't experience God's will to be perfect, again, if there's harboring of unconfessed or unrepentant sin. Proving God's will first requires the condition that I am not being conformed to this world. 
So again, it's the same pattern in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this. There's just a negative side of it. That I'm not being conformed so my mind can be transformed within. And so some people, you know, they come to good churches where the Bible is taught, but they're really not changing and growing because their mind can't receive the truth because of internal distractions, unconfessed, unrepented sin. I preached a sermon once on how to hear a sermon. Uh, you know, there, there is a way to hear a sermon where it's going to do us good. These three words, good and acceptable and perfect, describe God's will. In Romans 12, 2, a renewed mind finds God's will to be good because God never asks us to do anything that is not for our good. And only a renewed mind can perceive God's good will because sometimes the will of God will seem to be anything but good. And so receiving God's will demands the perspective of faith. Again, there's a place where we develop that faith. So all these truths intersect and feed off of one another. The will of God for Joseph who was convicted as a sex offender for attempted rape that landed him in prison for obeying God seemed to be anything but good when prison was God's goodwill for him. From a human perspective, it looks like he was gypped. Here he was walking right in the center of God's will in every aspect and he ends up in jail. This perspective can only come as we study scripture from which our faith can grow, right? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And because Joseph walked by faith, God was able to use him to preserve a nation. And so he could say to his brothers, if you remember at the end of the book, Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So Satan, who will try to convince you that God cannot be trusted, right? That's the genesis of the uh, temptation, right? Did God really mean? God's just ripping you off. He's withholding. He always gets us to question God's goodness. If you had this over here, it would be much better. He'll try to convince you that God can't be trusted and that God's will is not good. And so only a renewed mind that has been radically altered by the word of God is able to testify to this. First, a renewed mind finds the will of God to be good. And second, a renewed mind will also discover God's will to be acceptable. Or you could translate it pleasing, as in the English Standard Version, or well-pleasing in the Net Bible or the Lexham English Bible. Uh, that's the essence of it. It's something that is pleasing, acceptable, or well-pleasing, you could modify it. The believer who is learning and applying the word discovers that what is well-pleasing or acceptable to God becomes his goal. Because if it is not acceptable to God, then it's not acceptable to him. Again, that's the walk of faith. And faith is like a muscle. It grows when we exercise it. So with every step of faith we take, we, we learn that to be true more and more, that if it doesn't please the Lord, then it doesn't please me. And that becomes more of a driving force in our life than a secondary force. When Abraham was asked by God to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering, Genesis 22, right? As hard as it was for him, he was still able to find God's will to be acceptable. And so he receives God's will without question. No wonder he's called the father of the faithful. He knows he's going up on top of the mountains of Moriah to offer Isaac, but he knows that he and Isaac are going to return. That little first person plural pronoun, we. We will worship, and it's actually repeated twice in the original, we will return, because he believed that God was going to raise him up. And Paul reminds us of that right in Romans. God says in 1 John 5, 3, his commandments are not burdensome. Again, the more you get to know the Lord, the more you value his commandments. They're not restrictive, they're not burdensome, they're a blessing. A renewed mind understands that God never asks us to take a step 
to do something that we're not ready for. Because as we have meditated on Scripture, we have come to realize that God's will is acceptable. Right? There's no temptation. It's the word also for testing that is overtaking you, right? But as such as is common to man. And God will never allow us to be tested or tempted beyond that which we're able. So God, God doesn't put us in some situation that we can't handle. And what an older Christian or an ardent follower of the Lord like Joseph might experience might be different from a younger believer. But God doesn't um, tempt us or test us beyond what we're able. And you realize that, that this is acceptable. It looks bad. When my son called me up at um, 9 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and in July, seven years ago, he couldn't speak. He said, Dad, I don't understand it. She's gone. Our little girl is gone. She died in her sleep. But you know, he understood, because he had matured in his faith, that that was part of God's acceptable will. You can't figure it out sometimes. But as you walk with God, you understand that he's good. There are several different Greek words. Oh, let me, 22. The Apostle Paul also tells us that the believer with a renewed mind will find God's will not only to be good and acceptable, but perfect. Now, there are several different Greek words translated perfect in the Bible. And this adjective here, it's an adjective, teleos, was used to refer to something that is complete. In fact, the verb teleo is used of Jesus who became a complete or perfect man, which is kind of interesting to think about when you consider the Lord Jesus. I explain Hebrews 5, 9 says that Jesus was perfected, not because he did not sin, of course he never did, For the connotation of this verb carries the idea of growth and maturity, not necessarily of moral perfection, though Jesus possessed that too. He was morally perfect, and yet the Scripture will argue in the book of Hebrews he learned obedience. You know, he was fully human in the kenosis, the emptying of himself. He chose not to exercise his divine attributes, so he never lost a single one but to live in dependence upon the Spirit. He had to learn to talk and walk and all the bodily functions that you have, he went through. He had to learn to socialize, all those things. And yet, he is described as the perfect man. He fully reached that completeness, even in his humanity. The Apostle Paul is reminding us that those who do the will of God discover that his will is not lacking in any respect, for it is perfect. It is true that sometimes the will of God will lead you into places that you cannot see the reason for it. It seems everything is going wrong. Maybe some of you are there tonight. Christians, through the renewal of their minds, have proved over and over again the truth that God's will is perfect, are motivated to submit even when they do not understand because they know God's will does not lack. It's perfect. It's complete. It's total. A person who has reached the end of life dissatisfied means they have either never been saved or it means they have never matured and have been more conformed by the world's mold than God's will. And that's sad, you know, if Dr. Graham was right, then 90 to 95% of the Christians in America have never matured. That's sad. I I used to think as a new pastor that a a great church would be where everyone's a mature Christian. And I realized, no, that's not a great church at all. That's a church that shows you're not reaching people for Christ. But what is an unhealthy church is when you have baby Christians who are not being fed, where they can grow, there are some who make their own choices to remain immature, and they'll have great regrets at the judgment seat of Christ. 
But to have baby Christians around, look, that's a good thing. I mean, who wants to live in a home where, there's, where there was never any children? I mean, unless God had that call in your life. It's good that the milk spills on the floor and there's Cheerios all over the place and there's diapers to change. That's life. But you just don't want it to stay there. And God doesn't want us to stay there either. But it doesn't lack. Authority. There are true believers who are living for self rather than for God, which is why they're always reaching for something missing in their lives. These same truths of building a stable and satisfied life through a renewed mind are also brought out in Psalm 1 which we studied earlier in this section, if you will remember. Let me refresh your mind. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So the pattern of negatively shunning the ungodly philosophies of the wicked or the ungodly, some translations render it, so as not to be conformed to the world and positively to find his delight in the law of the Lord so as to be transformed is identical to Romans 2, 12, 2. Same pattern. Put away this, the godly man, he doesn't, and again, there's this progression. He, he walks and then he sits and he stands and then he sits and there's this putting away, but there's also this putting on. Same pattern, found identically in so many of the epistles. And then he adds, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. On the one hand, the apostle Paul speaks of those who find God's will as something good and acceptable and perfect. While on the other hand, the psalmist uses the simile of a tree planted to make the same point. Again, very, very similar points, just different ways of saying and unfolding the truth. Here in Psalm 1, God uses a figure of speech, namely a simile, right, like or as, when he says that the man of God will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. This is an appropriate conjunction in that first... Like a healthy tree with a strong water source, he will show vitality. In contrast to the ungodly, which are dead spiritually. And so, what do they describe like verse 4? They're like chaff. The difference between a tree and chaff is simply life. And when you have life, you're able to minister life to those around you. So again, we, we've seen this interplay in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Ephesians 5, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And we saw those two major verbs and all these participles that fell all the way from those. They get their force from the main, main verb, and they were identical because there's a relationship between the two. And so as we meditate on God's word, there's stability. Jesus said it in John 7, remember the last day, the great day of the feast, he stood up, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and then out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. These things he spoke concerning the spirit who was not yet given, because he had not yet been glorified. But again, it's the same principle from two perspectives, and they're brought together in so many places. The simile of the tree is also helpful in that the man or woman who shuns evil and in his law he meditates day in life will also show stability. So he shows vitality, he shows life, but he shows stability as well. Why are so many Christians just up and down and all around? Because they don't meditate on the word. They don't have a serious commitment to it. Or if they have approached Bible study, they've done it from a dirty heart. And again, we've got to hold those tensions together. Again, God is contrasting the tree with chaff and that the spiritually dead are like chaff which the wind drives away when the storms of life come. So he's using a, a common metaphor, you know, you'd take the animals and they'd bring them around and around, they'd stomp the, stomp the wheat and stomp the wheat and stomp the wheat, and they, they did it enough, the, the wheat would fall out, and then they'd take their fork and they'd throw it up in the threshing floor of David, where was it? Up high on the Temple Mount, because that's where the breezes were, and all the chaff would blow away, and what were you left with? Well, you know, it's, it's a metaphorical picture that 
Men can be like chaff. The storms of life come and they crumble. And sometimes Christian people, because of choices they've made. Now, remember, God will never allow you to be tested beyond what you're able. So even if a new Christian meets tragedy, God somehow, in his grace, will give him what he needs to walk him through it. By contrast, 39, a tree that is firmly planted stands strong because of personal grasp of the truth through our own study and meditation of the Bible makes us in difficult times firmly established and steadfast, to use Paul's words in Colossians 1.23. I think it's interesting to note that the tree described in Psalm 1 did not form from a seed dropping to the ground or floating through the air, but was planted, indicating it did not just spring up and is not just there by chance. When we respond to God's grace by turning from the world, right, the way they live, the way they walk, stand and sit, they become scoffers. When we respond to God's grace by returning from the world to the living God, it's the next verse, and then we make decisions to grow, we become a tree that God sowed. The word firmly, by the way, if you have the NESB, I I, I missed it. It's a typo. I've already circled it. It should be italicized because it's it's not a part of the original Hebrew text if you have your NASB. But it is certainly an implication. But literally, the Hebrew text says, he shall be like a tree planted. So it's just not a seed blown through your yard and, oh, look, we got this magnolia tree coming up. Cut that down. They're a pain in the neck, you know. (laughs) Endless leaves. (laughs) Uh, You know, so there's that kind of tree. And then there's the kind that, no, I I want this cedar right here. And so God is likening him to a tree that is planted. I have often wondered whether Jesus, who loved the Psalms, that's obvious, right, even on the resurrection road with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opens up the Law of the Prophets and the Psalms. He quotes the Psalms repeatedly. I just gave a couple of examples. I wondered if he had this Psalm in mind when he said, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant will be uprooted. The simile of the tree is also helpful in that the man or woman who shuns evil and in his law he meditates day and night will show fruitfulness. So once again, he is contrasting a fruitful tree with chaff, where the crop has been taken from the chaff, right? The wheat hull, and all that is left is the husk without produce. Even so, and it's really interesting, too, that Psalm 1, you know, well, I, I won't go there. I'll never get this done. But, you know, there are five books to the Psalms. And there's actually a structure to the Psalms, and there's a reason Psalm 1 heads this altar. Even so, the spiritually dead are like this, for one cannot expect them to bear the fruit of the Spirit because they do not have the life of the Spirit. So, you know, pagans are the way they are. But by the grace of God, there go I. And some of them go deeper into sin than others. And some of them continually and habitually resist God's will. And we're seeing that in the world today like never before. Even in the last month, this spirit of anti-Semitism that is just multiplying across the world. Turkey is supposed to be an ally of Israel. And then the president comes out against Israel last week, saying that Hamas is anything but a terrorist organization. An organization that butchers bodies, beheads babies, cooks people in ovens, beyond belief what has happened. And now it's radically multiplying, not just in America on the college campuses, but in nations of the world. They have no life. So in juxtaposition to verse 4, speaking of course Psalm 1-4, is verse 3 where God promises fruitful ministry. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. 
and its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. No born-again follower of Christ will have a fruitful ministry who does not shun evil companions and who does not seek godly communion and who does not put his roots deep down into the river of God's word. The Holy Spirit wants to produce his fruit for he inspires Paul to write, but the fruit of the Spirit is. And most of you know it does not say the fruits of the Spirit are but the fruit of the Spirit is, and then these nine qualities. Because you can't say, well, I'm heavy on this one, but low on this one. Likewise, Jesus wants to make us fruitful. For he said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. I'm asking God for fruit. I do every week. I'm, I was thrilled that a lady came on Sunday who I invited in my, she was out on the, the public dock and she came and she fell though, I guess, and got hurt. But um, still, you know, uh, I sensed when I met her that day, her heart was very, very open to the Lord. And there's people like that and we're called not just to bear fruit, but in terms of the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of conversion. Go, he's, he's speaking there of evangelism. Go and bear fruit. And again, many Christians are quenching the Spirit because they're unwilling to do that. The fruit that grows on the godly tree will be both the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit that comes when we go and bear fruit by sharing Christ. On whatever level you do that. It might just be an invitation I told this to the new members reception uh, last Sunday. I said, you know, we're sitting at the new members reception. How'd you come? You don't know? I said, refresh my mind. Should I know? He said, you invited me. I did. (laughs) And he said, I was in your home. I may have told you this story. If I did, I apologize. I was in your home and you invited me. You were in my home. Come on. He said, I was delivering a refrigerator. And I had a skull cap on. That's probably why you didn't recognize me. You talked to me about the Lord, and I came, and I became a believer. And you baptized me, and here I am. <laughs> Sometimes you will change the whole direction of a family's life, or a man's life, or a woman's life, for the simple reason that you, in some way, shape, or form, Reach out and show them the love of Christ. And the fruitfulness described here that comes for the one who is in his law, he meditates, is for the one who in his law meditates day and night, is not just for a moment, but is consistent. He's talking about, too, fruit that will remain. And and he's talking about a consistent life. It's not just kind of a flash in the pan uh, life. When I read Psalm 1, I am reminded that the leaves are the seen part. They're the seen part of the tree, but the roots are the unseen part that only God can see. We are told this person is likened to a tree that has a leaf that does not wither, for he is perennially green as his roots go deep, because like roots that you do not see, this person has time alone with God. Here's a man, a woman who has time alone with God. Dead and withered leaves are signs of death and dryness, but leaves that do not wither will in their proper season bear fruit as God chooses. And you'll discover, too, while you can walk in the Spirit consistently, you're not 24-7 leading people to Christ. There's just seasons. You see that in the church. There are seasons where... For a month or two, God just brings all these new Christians, and there's three or four months when there's not, and it just, it just comes in, in God's timing and in God's providence. 55, right? Some get discouraged when they begin to walk uprightly, and fruit is not immediately evident, but we must wait for har- harvest time to come. I tell that to new pastors all the time. I said, dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness. It's found of a steward that one be found faithful. I said, and if you're faithful long enough, you'll be fruitful. 
We must learn to cultivate faithfulness, and in God's perfect time, we will be like one who yields its fruit in its season. In fact, God promises that in whatever he does, he prospers, reminding us that through our lives, God brings some good out of everything, such that even in tough circumstances, we show that we prosper under God's hand. You know, I I did a funeral for uh, a brother in our church. His name was Carew Rice. He was an attorney here in town, and he was a member of our church, and it was a big deal for him to come over here because he left the the church that was supposedly the right church to be in, where all the rich folks were. But they didn't have the gospel, at least at that time they didn't. In fact, the preacher used to make fun of me in his sermons. (laughs) But this guy, Brother Crew Rice, he used to always try to... uh, get some fellow businessman, some attorney, some doctor, would I go out with him for lunch? And we shared the gospel over the course of about three years with a lot of people over lunch. I said, you buy, all I need is an iced tea. I can't eat and talk at the same time. And that's what we did. Well, he died in a tragic plane crash. I was on vacation and he had all these, you know, these ancient antique planes, and it went up and it went down fast. But his sister, Missy, at his funeral, there's probably maybe 500 people there. He said, at this funeral, Pastor, and I preached the funeral and I preached the gospel, he said, everyone that he wanted to hear the gospel heard it today. And sometimes, you know, God has a bigger plan, a longer view, because he really loves people, and he sees things in ways that we don't. So God does not spell, that should say, prosperity as money, M-O-N-E-Y, like many false teachers do, but God describes prosperity, remembering whatever he does, he prospers, throughout the scripture as continually achieving the will of God for one's life. You find the will of God to be good and acceptable and perfect. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there was laid up for me the crown of righteousness. That's doing the will of God. God is simply promising that a man or a woman who has God's word deep in his or her heart will have God's hand on their life and family and ministry. Okay, so that was the first point in terms of what God word can do in our life. The second point, point B, the Bible can produce a close personal relationship with the Lord. God promises in his word that as we discover his will and we obey what we know, we will grow in our intimacy or closeness with the Lord. Solomon, perhaps as much by his failure, learned that there is nothing more satisfying than being close with the Lord. And so he writes this in Proverbs 3.32, for the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. God has his intimates, even amongst his people, that he can be closer with. Again, because of choices they make. Instead of walking the straight and narrow road the Lord has marked out in Scripture, the devious person, it's a study in itself as you follow that down and look at examples, the devious person travels his own way, the way of lawlessness, selfishness, and violence, and so he does what God hates. By contrast, God describes the upright. And he uses a Hebrew word which implies something that is straight. And so spiritually speaking, he obeys the Lord. Some do the opposite. The promise given to the obedient believer who walks the straight way found in God's word is that he will have a close, intimate walk with the living God. It's a wonderful promise. For instance, the Lord Jesus made a similar statement, a similar promise in John 14, 21, when he said, he who has my commandments and keeps them 
is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. In the context of John chapter 14, the primary teaching of verse 21 is that if we truly know Christ as our Savior, then we will love and follow Jesus. Because if we are rooted in him, there will be fruit. We'll keep his commandments. Certainly, this statement by Christ does not mean that God's love is merited by our obedience, for John's gospel reveals that a relationship between Jesus and his followers begins with God and not man. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. You're born not of the will of man, he'll say in John 1, but of the will of God. So please understand, this verse does not mean that God's love is earned, but it but it does mean that if you are one who keeps Christ's commandments, it shows that you are in a born-again relationship and know God's love. There is a sense in which God the Father and God the Son loves all people, even as we are to love all people. Jesus said in Luke 6, right? Love even your enemies. Jesus tells us that the Father's heart goes out in a special way to those who love his Son. All right? The Lord disciplines his own. He disciplines those whom he loves. I thought he loves everybody. Well, he does in a broad sense, but in a special sense, we are beloved of God. We are his beloved, right? Jesus tells us that the Father's heart goes out in a special way to those who love his Son. That is, to those who are his beloved. And if we are then... We are, and if we are, (laughs) then we are to show our love by obeying him, giving us a new level of love. With that said, the Bible is clear that we can choose not to love God, even as believers. We can choose not to love God as a member of 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 those who are beloved and thus hinder our intimacy with God. You can see this truth disclosed between two believers, Abraham and Lot, who had vastly differing degrees of closeness to God. Right? Just read Genesis 18 and 19. What does God do when he meets Abraham? You have a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus, the angel of the Lord who is called Yahweh in Scripture. So God comes. He's not really an angel, I suppose. I mean, the word angelos and malak in Hebrew just means a messenger. In fact, John the Baptist is called an angelos. He's a messenger of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord was a unique angel, and we covered in our course in the Institute on, Bibliol- on Angelology. He was God. And of course, you never see the angel of the Lord after the incarnation. He never showed. You see an angel of the Lord, but you never see the angel of Yahweh again after the incarnation. So when the angel shows up with two other real angels, so to speak, regular angels, I suppose you could say, he does with Abraham. But when it's time to go down to Lot's place, the Lord doesn't go down there. Now, was Lot saved? You scratch your head and you'd say, it doesn't look like it until you come to the New Testament where there's definitive commentary. He's called righteous Lot. So yes, he was saved. And there are things under, again, the old covenant due to the hardness of man's heart that would never pass the litmus test for this age. But he was a real believer. But God had a very different kind of relationship between those two men. So if we love God by obeying God, he will manifest himself to us more fully. And so the apostle Paul told the Philippians that this was his reason for living. Right? But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish so I may gain Christ. So it's not just learning the Bible, though that's integral to spiritual growth. But he who 
keeps my commandments, shows that he loves me. And the Lord manifests himself to them, not only initially at conversion, but in this whole process of sanctification. And when we're walking with the Lord, it's the most exciting, thrilling thing in the world. The things that the world has to offer become less and less significant to us. Point C, the Bible can produce a progressively growing spirit-directed life. As we have learned through this entire section, it is only as we spend time in God's Word that the Spirit will use His Word to bring more and more areas of our life under His control. Right? How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word with all my heart? I've sought thee. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Search the passion. Your word I've hidden, I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Or Proverbs 6, my son, comply with the commandment of your father and do not ignore the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. You ever have God's word talking to you about the spirit of God? It's a wonderful thing. Some of the best insights I've gotten, not for some sermon, but just for me, is when I'm just out in the yard working, picking up sticks, taking a study break, one thing or another, and, and God's talking his word back to me. He gives us insights. They'll talk to you. Sometimes they'll talk to you, as we saw last time, in the midst of temptation, right? If we've hidden his word in his heart, he'll bring to the forefront of our mind if we're spirit-filled. And then there's much more of a conscious, willful decision to block out the scripture that you've hidden and memorized, to block that out, to focus on the temptation. And so how do we see bad habits change? We meditate on scripture. We hide it in our heart. And then the Spirit of God unsheaths it when we need it, assuming we're filled. But if we're grieving or quenching or not walking by Him, we've restricted that ministry. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and rebukes for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman from the mouth, from the smooth tongue of the foreign woman. We have seen there is a direct parallel between being filled and allowing God's Word to saturate our thinking. That was last week, the parallel between those texts, and you had a whole chart on it. When we are saved by faith in Christ, we enter into an eternal relationship. So look below. There's a diagram right here in the middle of the page. People outside of that symbol are in the kingdom of darkness. People inside that circle are in the kingdom of light. There's been a conversion, all right? When we are saved by faith in Christ, we enter into an eternal relationship from which we can never leave or exit. John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. is greater than all. No one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. We're both God. And so we spend five weeks not just on assurance of salvation, but the eternal security of the believer, and there's a big difference between those two. There are Christians who believe you can be assured of salvation. When we went to the Ukrainian church, it was standard they believed in assurance, but it was standard that you could lose your salvation. And so through 10 years of teaching, by God's grace, we were able to change that whole oblast. And virtually, when we, we you know, build a Bible college, the generosity of these people, you. And we went there, and I'd go twice a year for years and years, and we found other Bible teachers that we trusted, and we sent them there. And after a while, they, they have their own show now. They don't need us, and that's what you want. You want it to be run by nationals. But they affirm the doctrine of eternal security. So there are churches in this town, they're typically Pentecostal, all your Pentecostal, Assembly of God, uh, strictly speaking Methodists, if, they, if you still can find a Bible-believing Methodist church, of course they've totally sunk and embraced the homosexual lifestyle full scale. But you know, traditionally, historically, they thought, yes, I know I'm saved today, I just don't know I'll be saved five years from now. I could do something, and that really muddies the grace of God. And that, in the course of church history, wasn't really introduced until about the 1500s. Anyway, let me keep going. We also enter into fellowship with God, which is a moment-by-moment experience 
that can be broken when we sin against God. Right? I'm writing these things to you that you might have fellowship with us and our fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, 1 John. The center line represents sinless obedience. While we will never achieve this perfectly until we arrive home in glory, it is no less God's plan for us now as we grow and mature in Christ. So, right, he said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. First Peter 1, you're to be holy, for I am holy. And he quotes the Old Testament. So Paul will write this, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man, uh, the old English says perfect, it's the word we looked at earlier, teleos, complete, you could say mature in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. So again, see the realm here. You step into the circle, and obviously, the moment you're converted, you're not out of fellowship with God. You're in fellowship with God, right? I mean, it's inconceivable. I'm living in total rebellion, but I want you, Jesus. No, there's a change of heart to his lordship. So you you enter into fellowship with the Lord, but you see these lines, they're very wide when you enter in on the right side because you're a new Christian, and God is honing us over the course of time. And as you walk along, you hit a point of conviction. And it will be different for a new Christian than it might be for someone who's been obeying and following what he knew for a decade. So it might be someone's a new Christian and, you know, and all of a sudden they hit one of these walls and God says, you know, get the booze out of your refrigerator. It buzzes your brain. You're in violation of the greatest commandment to love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul. Stop it. Not to mention it causes people to stumble. It doesn't glorify me. And it's strong drink, and you're not supposed to use strong drink. You say, okay, Lord, I repent of that. And you're walking further down the road, and you hit another bump here, and God says, you know, it's not good, man. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You need to get rid of that. And you're walking along, and you hit another, again, the lines get closer, and at the front end of your Christian life, they're really wide, because God's dealing with a lot of the rough things, and you hit another. But if you hit some line of conviction, God shows you something, and says, I'm not going to do that. Then you step out of that realm of fellowship. Are you still saved? Yeah, you can't step out of the circle. But you cease growing. And so God's design is that we get closer and closer to that center line, God's perfect will. But again, there's choices that we make. And if we keep hitting a line, and we don't seem to be getting any victory over it, we have to ask, is my repentance been real? Is it real confession? Is, you know, I, I, I deal with people a lot who enter the church and they come here with porn problems. It's a big problem in our day. Because you can carry it on your, your little handheld computer. I say, well, it just depends how serious you are. Make no provision for the sinful nature in regards to its lust. So it doesn't just start with, I'm going to look at all these nude people. It starts with lowering your standards or the kind of movies you watch or the kind of music you listen to. You get used to stuff. The things that once bothered you doesn't bother you anymore. So if you hit some, so when you, when you hit a wall like that, you got to make sure you hide God's word in your heart so you can get victory. Remember, the sword of the spirit. Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. But if there's nothing hidden there, when the temptation comes, you're not going to likely see victory. So you have to be filled with the spirit. You have to hide God's will in your heart. And so there's this progressive walk where we get closer and closer. He's conforming us to the image of Christ, right? Romans 8. That's God's plan for our life. That he might, he works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For what reason? So that we can become like Jesus. We're predestined to become shaped into what Jesus is like. Why? So that he will have first place among everything. He's glorified. They see Jesus in us. That's what he wants to do.
Now, it's a lifelong process. Never stops. But a mature Christian hasn't arrived, but he has a grown-up and a growing relationship with the Lord. So while we enter the circle on the right side with the lines of conviction somewhat spread apart, they grow closer and closer together as we learn God's word in response to the Spirit's teaching and convicting ministry. So, you know, this is where we need to be patient with new Christians. I think I shared this years ago in the church. I was in a church in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I brought this guy to church with me, a man, and he had hair down to his waist. This is 1970s. And someone came up to him in the church service and he said, don't you know it's a shame to have long hair? Well, you know, I'm, I, I just introduced this guy to Christ. He was a childhood friend. He hadn't even thought, he didn't even know what the Bible says. You know, how long is long hair? Well, you should be able to tell the difference between a male and a female. And there's a lot of latitude, okay? But, you know, you've got to give people time to grow. Sometimes people come down here on a Sunday morning and half their breasts are showing. Oh, you know... Look at you, lady. She just received Christ. Give her a chance to grow. It takes time to grow. So we start way out here where the lines are really wide. But we're conformed. As illustrated above, while we as believers can break fellowship or intimacy with God, it's impossible to sever our relationship with him. The lines or points of conviction grow closer and closer to the center line of God's perfect will as we meditate on Scripture and we obey. So it's not just knowledge, it's knowledge applied, obedience. As we obey, God reveals himself to us, right? We just read that. So Daniel promises, Daniel eleven thirty two: the people who know their God will display strength and take action. For this reason, Solomon could tell us where there is no vision, no clear revelation from God, the people are unrestrained, or the people, you could render it, are, are cast, the people cast off restraint, or they flounder, or the old English says they perish. It has nothing to do with the way Rick Warren took it out of context. What's your vision statement, Pastor? I need it in 20 words. What's your vision statement for your life? You know, where there's no vision, the people perish. It has nothing to do with that. His point is where there's no revelation, where there's no uh, information from God in a day when the Scripture was limited, or it wasn't being taught, there was a famine in the land, and the people flounder. Why? Because strength comes from knowing God's Word. And so... 12, while the people in Hosea's day had some knowledge, they did not have enough knowledge concerning God's person and God's ways. In 11, I think I skipped it, the prophet Hosea said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, so as to remind them that they were destroyed, not because God had lost his love or strength, but due to their ignorance. And while the people in his Hosea's day had some knowledge, they did not have enough knowledge concerning God's person and God's ways. They were like many people today who think they know God's word well enough, and knowing more is not necessary for a vital walk with God. We have been learning that God and his word are vitally connected. And so we're not surprised when King David writes in Psalm 138:2, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your Shem, your name, for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word according to your, your name. In the Hebrew culture, a name reflected the nature and character of a person. I gave you some examples there with Jacob, remembering his name change. And from Yaakov, that meant a rip-off artist to Yitzrael. Which is why Moses asked for God's name. Remember in Exodus 3, what's your name, Lord? In order to fully convey to the Israelites who God really is. King David knew 
that God held his word on par with his name, or you might render the Hebrew above all your name, though that's a little bit more of a paraphrase. Literally is according to your name, but uh, sometimes you hear people say, well, God's word, he's put above his name. But it is in the sense that David knew that God communicates his person through his word. He communicates his person, what he is like through his word. This is a stunning and remarkable statement reminding us of the incredible high regard God has for his own word as he holds his word in accordance to his very character or his name. And again, some translations trying to capture that, they say that God's magnified his word above his name. But it's in accordance to his name because the name of God is the person of God and the word of God represents who God actually is, right? If this is what God thinks about his word, we should think the same. God is reminding us that he values the integrity of his word above everything else. Because everything we know about who God is and what God's name or person represents is found in his infallible word, right? Which is the absolute stupidity of what we've seen in some of these mega churches where we've unhitched the Old Testament from the New and what's important is not, you know, what you read in the Bible about that Jesus rose from the dead. Everything you know about Jesus is resurrected. It's all found in his word. I mean, just stupid stuff. But we have this sadly blind and ignorant evangelical church in America that follows stupidity. 21, though God's creation expresses God's glory, right? The heavens are declaring the glory of God, Psalm 19. God's glory and character. God has a greater regard for his word. And so God the Son stated, heaven and earth which Psalm 19.1 says declares God, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So as we spend time daily finding out who God is through his word, and as we obey what we know, we will know him more of him. And to know him more, to know him more fully is to love him more dearly, dearly. To know him more fully. So as you read scripture, and you obey scripture, he reveals himself to you. When he reveals himself to you, it's like, wow, God, you're great, I love you. And you want to obey God more, and you obey him more, and what does he do? He reveals more of himself. So if, if, if our quiet time or listening to sermons is dry and dusty, there's an internal problem. So by application, I would just say establish a daily quiet time. If that's a new term to you, it's just a time alone with the Lord. It's been called many things over the centuries. The time needs to be regular. We read in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. If you don't like the morning, you could claim this verse in Matthew. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray when, when it was evening and he was there alone. So there's no like right time to do it. You have to decide what works for you. The place ideally should be where you're not distracted. Jesus said, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You have to have a quiet place. And there will be times too when you're like in a prayer closet, as we might call it, and you actually go in there and you get on your knees and you got something you want to talk to God about and you don't want anybody to even know you're in there and you're just you and the Lord. You talk to him about what's on your heart and what you think he needs to do in your heart. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. So the time needs to be regular, the place ideally. You know, and I know, you know, there are, when you got young moms and they're changing diapers and they got to figure out how they got to do this. And, you know, there's that nap time and that quiet time where you give the kids an assignment and maybe that's your time. But God can make it happen. 
if it's a priority. The mission is to read scripture, pray, and to worship God. That's, the mission. That's what you're trying to do. You're, you're gonna let God talk to you from his word. You're gonna talk to God in prayer and you're gonna worship him in the process. Here's with every handout two memory verses. And then you might consider the top 100 challenge. That's the last page. <laughs> so these are just New Testament verses. And it's not like always a verse, like the first one is Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone. The next one is Matthew 5, 13 to 19. So that's not a single verse, but it's hard to take a single verse out of there because what you're trying to do when you memorize scriptures, you're trying to understand its meaning contextually. And sometimes that, I mean, if you memorize Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not that of yourselves, stop. I forgot where verse nine starts, but I think it's, it is the gift of God. So you really kind of need to sometimes memorize two verses together, but that's okay. That's not a bad thing. Are there anything special about these verses? Not really, I just chose them. These are verses I know. And, uh, but there are many more I know. These are just New Testament verses, but why these? Because I have found in my life and. 45 years of ministry, I use verses like these all the time. They just meet the basic needs that people have. But you know, if you don't know where a verse is and maybe you've never hit it, it's kind of hard to do that. And again, your, your goal is to grow, to love the Lord, to enjoy him, and also to help others in the process. All right, let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for the several weeks that we have had together just thinking about your word and who you are and how you work and thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who bears witness to our spirit that we're children of God. Thank you for his love that has been poured out in our hearts. Thank you for the way he teaches us and helps us to understand the scripture and shows us personally what we need to do that might be very different from someone else. Thank you, Lord Jesus, just as you said, you didn't leave us as orphans. But you sent one that is so much like you, you call him the Spirit of Christ. Thank you that he is our down payment that the work that you began, you promised to complete, that we're sealed with him, in him forever. And our guarantee that when he comes back, that we're marked as his. And thank you that he gave us the Bible, that it was his ministry to inspire every word. Help us to learn it. Help us in this day of great distraction, in this day of worldliness, to put our priorities first. 